Hey there, welcome to the Product Hive Podcast. On this episode, we're bringing you the presentation from our April product event, where you'll hear from Ash Roberts, Ben Norris, and Jansen Perry, all of whom work in product at OC Tanner. In most, if not all companies, there are occasions when a company's strategic direction provides what feels at the time like limiting constraints on the product team. And by product team, we mean the UX designer, engineering lead, and product manager, which you'll be hearing from today. These constraints can often cause severe thrashing within and across the product teams. Join us and learn from a current case study how the product team at OC Tanner is taking their company strategy, applying thoughtful product practices, and producing value-creating products. A big thanks to OC Tanner for hosting this meetup. So now, let's hear the presentation, Constraints and Deliberate Innovation. Alrighty, well, we're excited to share with you some things today. Um, first of all, we just want to introduce ourselves. So Ben's going to introduce himself, Jason's going to introduce himself, and then I'll introduce myself and we'll go from there. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Norris, the imposter developer here in the product group. Uh, I'm the engineering manager on our mobile team. And as I mentioned, as some people were joining, I, I have seven children. Uh, so my wife and I are very familiar with constraints and <laughs> all that comes with that. I'm Jason Perry. I'm the UX designer for the mobile team at OC Tanner. Um, so I've been at OC Tanner for about two years. And I'm just learning about constraints now. I only have one kid, but. Awesome. And I'm Ash. Um, as you can tell, I'm from a different country. I'm originally from South Africa, been here for a while now. And uh, I'm the product manager for the mobile team. And we're just excited to share some things with you today. Um, so we want to set this up. And we want to set it up. With, uh, with kind of what Mindy was saying earlier is that our mission at OC10 is to help people thrive at work. And so if we haven't helped you in any way today thrive, we, feel, we would feel like we failed. Um, and so that's just something that's at the heart of our company and at the heart of each of us today as we present, you'll see that, that kind of passion of really helping you thrive. And so in order to do that, um, our presentations about constraints and, and, and learning to live with that. And as product leaders, we, we need to, to, to learn to live with constraints. Um, and so if someone tells me out there that they don't have any constraints, um, they're either lying or their company doesn't actually exist. Um, we all are dealing with constraints. If you disagree with me, please email me. More than happy to get emails and have a chat about constraints, but uh, it, it's just something that we all have to deal with. And so what we want to do today is present three pieces of our story in a case study uh, from different perspectives. So we all have the sa same constraint, but I, I want to show you how we went at it from each of our perspectives. And so what you'll hear is you'll hear from the product perspective, from the design perspective, and also from the engineering perspective. But as a participant, 
what we want for you is to look at this, look at our perspective, look at the case study here, but also include your company and what you're doing, um, which means that in order to be an active participant, you really need to be thinking about what we're sharing and then also kind of taking time to, okay, how does that work where I work? Um, so in order to do that, we're going to have some time where you will um, kind of think through and write down some things. Uh, you'll see that the, we, we've got about a, 30, a couple of 30-second uh, pieces where we just want some dead air time for you to think. Um, and we're actually going to start out with, with some of this. So some of you might be a little afraid of dead air. Uh, don't worry, there'll be some movement on the screen so you know that there's still stuff going on. Um, and so our first thing that we're going to ask you to do is write down your current constraints that your team is experiencing right now and also the type of constraint that you're experiencing. So a type might be like financial or time, maybe a lack of focus, new ideas, old ideas, hot topics, traininess, whatever it is. Take 30 seconds right now and just write down your current constraint constraints in the type. Here we go. Dead air is scary. <laughs> Awesome. Okay. So just know that you are not alone. Most company cultures are set up to be safe, um, which means that if they're safe, there's often some slowness, there's often some red tape. Um, this usually also means that others in your company are also under constraints, which, which can be helpful. Um, so just know you are not alone in having constraints. And uh, we hope that as we share this case study that it, it will help you in some way. As we start into the story of where we're at right now, I thought it would be useful to explore how we got here a little bit. So rewinding a couple of years, I was approached and asked to become the, the manager of the mobile team. And I said no, that I was not interested in that. And my boss kept talking to me and kind of pitched, this is why it would be a great thing. And as we talked about it, I thought, well, there's, there's potential here. One of, one of the challenges that I saw was at the time, our mobile team was kind of split out on, in different product groups. So we weren't a cohesive team. So it was, it was a very matrix style management where a manager was over people, but didn't actually work with them directly because we were embedded in different product teams. So I put together kind of a presentation to present to my boss and his boss to say, this is my vision for the mobile team. And if you disagree, please don't hire me because it's not going to work out well. And one of the first main things that I wanted to talk about was how people would be allocated across the different products. So as we looked at having me as the manager, at the time we had three developers on the team who were full-time and one contract developer. And so the first thing that I said was, we need to hire someone. We, we have need of at least one more person to work on this. 
And the big change that I want to propose is that we need a dedicated product manager. It, it's not working great for us to be embedded on product teams and to get different requirements where every product manager kind of disagrees as to what is actually most important. But then the other big thing that I asked for, as I said, we need a dedicated designer. We need someone who's thinking about mobile, who's not just thinking about their product and how do I adapt this feature to mobile, but is completely focused in that world is learning best practices and is able to drive the design that we need. So part of the vision that I described was we would have these different product teams and the product managers would come together, discuss with our product manager their priorities, then our product manager would come back to our team, we would discuss, we would decide what it was we were going to work on, and then over the next iteration, we would kind of split out and work embedded on the teams that needed work done. And then we would come back, we would kind of debrief as a team, the product managers would come together, they'd go through priorities for the next part. We would come back and discuss those as a team. And then as we dispersed, sometimes we would go back to the same teams, sometimes we would go to different teams. But this would allow us to work on all of the different products that we were being asked to work on, but still have a cohesive set of priorities and a, a clear design language managed by one person. So that was the first thing that I proposed. And the second was that we needed a different focus. And obviously I couldn't say this is what the company needs to do, but we had been saying that we're focused on mobile and mobile was the future and there's a lot here, but our actions didn't match up with that exactly. So one of the things that I proposed was to say our team relative to the organization needs to get to know the rest of the company. We need to have some interaction with other departments. And even more importantly, we need to have direct interaction with our customers. It's my belief, and obviously it's a little biased, but I think that mobile teams in particular have a greater degree of understanding and empathy for users even than most engineering teams. And so I really advocated that we have more direct access to our customers and to our end users. The other change that I wanted us to explore as a company was to say we have our mobile offering and at the time we were sp spread out across a few different apps. And there was a lot of pressure and talk of having a single app, one behemoth app to rule everything, to have all of the features that every product offered. And my proposal was let's not do that. Instead, let's have a suite of cohesive apps that each can deep link into each other. We can have a cohesive experience, but we don't have to maintain this giant of an app that includes all functionality we've ever dreamed of and have decided needs to be in the mobile app. The third thing that I wanted to change in our focus was to really leverage mobile capabilities. Up until that point, the mobile app had largely been the web version crammed onto a phone. And one of the first things I really wanted us to take advantage of was better notifications. Another is just dealing with the reality of networking on a mobile device. We have to deal with flaky, poor, or no connectivity. And we didn't have an answer for that up until that point. I also wanted us to be exploring voice technologies to integrate with smart assistants or dictation to become location aware if the products uh, made sense for that and really just find ways to differentiate our mobile offering so that it wasn't a web version housed in an app but we really had something special. Now as we fast forward a little bit um, 
we started working. Uh, I, I'm here today, so I took the job. They, they at least said at the time, yes, we agree with all those things. Let's do that. And we started working. Uh, the pressure for a single app did not go away. And that, that kept coming and kept being talked about as this is, this is the thing that's going to really make a difference for us. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't sure. I wasn't buying it quite yet. <laughs> but as I, as I talked more about it, I realized that in order to have the things that mattered most to me, specifically a dedicated product manager and a dedicated designer, we needed to have a team that was focused on a single app. So I needed to give up my dream of a suite of apps and instead have a single app. And really the thing that made the biggest difference for me was understanding that we could be talking about one app that is a focused, small, simple mobile experience. Instead of taking all of our products and cramming them into an app, we could let this dedicated product manager and dedicated designer craft an experience that really matches what users expect. And so the first takeaway that we had from this is that it's really important to compromise sometimes. In this case, we took on a constraint, and by we, I mean I, Jason and Ash didn't exist, I mean they existed, but in, in the mobile team, they, they weren't in our team yet. And so really this was kind of the backdrop to them joining the team. They came on and the requirement, the, the constraint from the beginning was surprise, you must have a single app. They didn't get to have any choice in the matter, but at least by, by my being involved in that, I got them, I got Ash and Jason. And so now we could start to interact or we could start to build within this constraint. Okay, so what you just heard there was Ben, what, what, what happened to Ben. And so from the product perspective, I come in and July 2019 was approached by the VP of product and asked, hey, would you take on a, a new role of heading the mobile applications? And at the time we had two mobile applications. One was focused on ad hoc employee recognition and the other was focused on um, manager um, and peer-to-peer one-on-ones. Um, at the same time, we also had uh, two web applications without mobile components. One was based on team uh, campaigns and initiatives, and the other was based on celebrations of career achievements. And so the VP said, hey, we want you to take on the mobile apps, uh, but we want it all in one app, a single app. And this was relatively daunting for me as a product manager. Um, and I think for, for Jason and Ben as well, it was like, how, how are we going to do this? And so what we decided to do was take a look at a, a bigger picture. Um, and right at first, we felt that one of the things we needed was some basic guiding principles. Before we really dug our teeth into this, what were some things that could guide us and help us? And initially, they were super rough. And actually, there was a lot of gut feel in there as well um, of this is what we think we want. Um, so instead of taking this microscopic view of, of okay, let's look at this app and let's look at what it, what it needs to do, we decided to take a step back and look at how people actually use mobile applications. So, you know, providing this, this distant view of, of, of how do people use it. And so, 
to do this correctly, we started with a, a really broad view of mobile app usage. Um, and, uh, and then we started to kind of narrow that down into, okay, well, the, here's what, how people use mobile apps everywhere. How do they use them as an at an enterprise level? How do people at companies use mobile applications during the workday while they're at home? Um, and so that was really helpful to us. And so what we, what we, what we started with was a lot of discovery. Um, we got some initial uh, discovery uh, uh, things written up and, and, and scripts, and we, we started doing some discovery and then went back to those scripts and adjusted them. And so overall, we did about 45 interviews up front. Uh, we got questionnaire responses. We had people participate in diary studies. And there was a lot of cross-team collaboration of that. If I, if I could just jump in for a Please second from in. the engineering perspective. This was uncomfortable. This, this was not exactly what the developers wanted to be doing. We, we made them go for about two months without really writing any code on this. And I know Jason felt some of that as well. We just wanted to get in and start working. Um, but as you may know, most developers, and my team is not too much of an exception, are not overly fond of talking to people. And so we made them go through a lot of uncomfortable things in order to really understand our users before we got started coding. Awesome, thanks. That's a perfect jump in there. Um, and so I want to reiterate that last point that, that we just mentioned there was that we were working together. Um, we tried as much as we could to involve other people across the company as well. So we worked with people from our design center, from our marketing team, from our client success, from our corporate projects team. And we also included those in leadership who have actually given us these constraints um, and, and ha had them help us on this synthesis um, and this, this discovery. And, and uh, it was extremely helpful to, to include a, a lot of people. And so what we ultimately came to was a, a really neat tool, uh, a, a user journey map for our Culture Cloud Mobile. Um, and so we were able to solidify some, some guiding principles and solidify our vision. And we're able to kind of map this journey out of how people use enterprise mobile applications. Um, not just regular mobile applications, but how do they actually use it when it comes from the enterprise or when the enterprise is pushing this? And so we, we got this map from Notice all the way to Champion with that decision point kind of right in the middle there um, of, hey, this is a really important thing to focus on. Um, we, we went through the doing and thinking um, and came out with, uh, with some important parts here of, you can see the ripple effects of where people drop out of using mobile applications. Um, and just to kind of, hey, be aware of this, watch out. And then obviously the feeling as well um, included in that, just to understand how each person is feeling in, in these phases as they go through the, the, the application experience. So a couple of takeaways here is uh, get as many people as possible to empathize with the user. Now, I want to note right up front, we did not do everything right. We were not perfect in this. One of the main failures I feel as a mobile product manager was not including any of the other product managers or their teams in our discovery work. 
it's uh, it's actually something that weighs on me. Um, and so inadvertently, we have constrained them as well because we we didn't involve them in, in this uh, mobile discovery. And so um, we've tried to kind of resolve that and uh, and bring them in uh, with the, the the journey map and empathize with users that way. But it's just something that that weighs on me. So get as many people as possible to empathize with the user, and then also just utilize everyone's expertise. Um, let me go back to that for just a second. You have experts on your team. Um, and don't forget that is, uh, your engineers, um, that you work with, there are experts everywhere. And so don't forget to, to, to use everybody's expertise there. Okay. So the next part, that I want to mention is just some of our research, what we discovered and what we did because of that. And so um, we're just going to talk through some informed innovation here. So the one main thing that our research taught us was that we had people dealing with tens and hundreds of distractions as soon as they unlocked their phone. And so a question for everyone rhetorical, how many of you have ever gone to your phone with a purpose in mind? And about five minutes later, you completely forgot why you were on your phone. Um, this is what we're dealing with, right? Is these, these distractions. And so what we learned really quickly is that there are short attention spans and users are on their phone for about four to eight hours a day. But that time is split up in between 30 and 60 second chunks. So you're spending 30 to 60 second chunks, four hours a day. It's kind of crazy when we think about it. And so that's just some of the, the fascinating research that we discovered as we did these interviews um, and, uh, and, and looked at other research that other companies had done as well. Um, and one other thing that we, we, we did that we felt was a little bit wrong is that we started to compare ourselves to companies outside of our industry. And when I say industry, I'm talking about like the B2B market, is uh, it's really difficult to compare your app to a LinkedIn or a Facebook or when they are not actually enterprise applications. Uh, they might be an enterprise company, but their, their users are not enterprise employees, right? And so what we decided to do was actually compare within our own industry because these companies are often have the same constraints as what we do. Um, and so it's, it's really helpful to, to be able to do that. So just two more takeaways here is focus on the most important thing first. Um, and, uh, and also just compare within industry. So Ash and Ben both talked about kind of this overarching constraint that we were given, um, that we had to support several, several products in one app. So our first approach when it came time to start talking about design was to define the critical actions now of each product. So we met with each product team individually and kind of explained what we were looking for and, and with them created this list of critical actions for each product. And how we defined critical action is essentially it's what the user has to be able to do for the product to be considered a success or to provide value to the user. So this now is our list of requirements for this app. 
which I think can be seen as a constraint or it can be seen as, a, as an MVP. So we saw that as this is our roadmap now to the MVP. And if it's not on this list, then we can safely ignore it. Uh, so that really, that is a way that the constraint was really helpful to us. Um, so I think now is a good time to take 30 seconds and think of uh, the critical actions on your product and ask yourself if they're actually critical or if you can trim the fat anywhere. So yeah, once we had our list, um, now we had to decide where, where do they go? Where does each of these actions live in the app? Uh, because we didn't want it to be so siloed by product that it was, you know, product one has this page and all of its actions and features and product two has this page. We want it to be an integrated experience that the products worked together. Um, so we had to be smart about how we organized it. So to start, I, uh, I created some diagrams of potential ways that we could organize the app. And doing this allowed us to, for, for one, make sure that all of the critical actions were accounted for, and then make sure that the flow to that action made sense and, and make sure that it was easily accessible, make sure that we were prioritizing things the right way. If I could jump in one more time, from an engineering perspective, this was the first design artifact that we got, was this flowchart diagram. And to be honest, we were giddy. We, I don't think I've ever worked on a team with a designer before who gave us structure and ideas well before pixels. And it, it really made a difference for us as we architected the app to understand first our users and then to understand the actions we were trying to perform. This was a really helpful piece for us to get before we started coding. And honestly, I mean, it was great to be able to provide this document and then kind of have a collaborative kind of vibe with the engineers that we could then go back and forth and iterate on this before we ever got into design. So it was really helpful for the whole design process too. Um, and so I'd say the takeaway for this uh, is essentially define your MVP by those critical actions, that that gives you a really clear list and that is what you now work towards and you can say no to things that are not on that list. Um, so the next thing we had to do, the first real design decision now was decide how we wanted to organize the app. So we, we created these multiple diagrams. Um, it was essentially around these different options of, do we want a single page app or do we want tab bar navigation? So we did some testing on these, on these different organizations. The first one was TreeJack tests on Optimal Workshop, which it was essentially a list of pages, menus, and then those actions. And we would give a user a task to find the action within that list. So it's not very representative of the experience that they would have in the app, but it at least allowed us to you know, spot any major issues we had with the organization. So we tested single page and tab bar in a tree jack and they were both successful. So we moved on to low fidelity prototypes. And so same thing, we gave users a task, go find this critical action. 
Um, and we, we ran through several iterations on both uh, organization styles on the single page and the tab bar, and those were both successful. So then we moved on to preference test and asked people on Usability Hub and uh, in person, which one do you like more? Just totally subjective. And it was a 50 split, 50 50 split every single time. So then we just had to make a decision and we chose tab bar based on the fact that it's a lot more common. So we looked at all the, all the major apps across all industries and tab bar navigation style accounted for over 70% of apps. So all, thing, all other things being equal, you know, we, we had successful tests on both of these versions. We figured, well, tab bar, our users will be hopefully more familiar with this navigation style. So let's move in that direction. Um, so the next constraint we had to deal with, this was another decision that, that Ben made for the rest of us, which I don't disagree with, to be clear, but it came with a lot of constraints, is uh, he chose to use Swift UI for their team, which is a brand new framework. I mean, when they started using it, was, it was like maybe weeks old, I think, that Apple released, um, that allowed them to move really quickly and iterate really quickly. Um, but the capabilities are not on par with the previous framework that, that they used to build apps, which was UIKit. Um, and some of these limitations are, are more in dynamic interactions. So um, scroll event listeners and things like that. So um, yeah, so this is an example of a design that was heavily influenced by this Swift UI decision. So the original concept, before I really understood these limitations that we'd be facing, uh, this is what I thought. So this is a user, a user text content page. Um, so that those black lines at the top, those are user text. It could be very short or it could be several pages long. So we had to account for some extremes. And then below that, there's a conversation view. And so we didn't want to take up too much of the screen so that the user could view this conversation. So my first concept, was it was based on patterns that you'll find pretty commonly in other apps as you scroll or maybe as you tap on the text we could collapse that text and it would change from bold to regular in a smaller point size and then it would truncate and and it'd be this kind of very complex interaction and then we'd have to account for editing in line and and all those things i was told this just was not possible with swift ui like it's not that it's difficult. I mean, with SwiftUI, it's either easy or it's impossible. And this was impossible. So we had to go kind of back to the drawing board a little bit on this. Um, and this was the new idea that we came up with. And this, uh, I have to give credit to the engineer. We, we collaborated. We, you know, we did a video call and talked through this. And he was pushing for how can we simplify this, one, so that it's able to be built in SwiftUI, and then two, so that it's a simpler experience. Um, and so we decided, well, you know, as we reassessed the priorities on this page, we said the user likely does not need to read several paragraphs of, of this text every time they come on this page. If we just give them one or two lines truncated, that'll be enough to give them the context that they need. And then if they tap on it, it opens up a modal and that's how they can view the whole text and they can edit it. And so, you know, it's, it was this constraint to use Swift UI and it was a limiting thing, but in the end, I think it really improved the design and it, it made it a lot simpler experience. So I was grateful to have that constraint and that collaboration. Um, so anyway, the, the takeaway really is use your constraints to your, to your advantage to improve your design. Um, so 
I, I talked about how we tested kind of this overarching theme. We went through several different types of tests, um, each feature that we would finish designing. Uh, this is kind of the steps that we went through is we first really wanted to understand the problem and what the user was, was hoping to accomplish with this feature. And then before designing, we'd try and anticipate where is there going to be friction? Where is there going to be, you know, these extreme cases that will, that will, uh, possibly need some, some design consideration. And then once we felt comfortable with that, we'd move on to designing a solution and then test the common use cases. And we'd iterate until the tests were successful and we felt comfortable with that. And then we would always try to test the fringe cases being um, extreme content, like if it's you know several pages long instead of just a couple lines of text and also those uncommon users. And then iterate there until we felt comfortable that, that the uh, extreme cases could be handled with this solution. So this is just uh, an example of our login experience. I wanted to show kind of where we ended up using what we learned from the journey map and then using uh, this kind of the uh, design process that we went through. So the journey map gives us these stages that the user goes through. And we realized, well, when they're logging in for the first time, they're not actually our user yet. They're still in the consider moving into the act stage, but we haven't won them over yet. So uh, they're going to be feeling a range of emotions in this stage that could be anxious and resistant, uh, could be hopeful. What it comes down to is they're about to try a new app and they may not really know what to expect. So what we decided we wanted to accomplish is just leave a really positive first impression and hopefully have an emotional connection between the user and this app now. And so as they click the, as they tap the get started button, now it slides off the screen and they spill their coffee and hopefully they have a really good first impression. Um, unfortunately, everyone's muted. So I just hope that at least we got a couple chuckles out of people. Um, that's usually been the reaction when we demo this live, or I guess I shouldn't say live, but in person. Um, so now the user enters our app for the first time on a high note, and hopefully that makes them more willing to learn how to, to actually use the app. So as Jason mentioned, apparently I have the reputation of deciding things for everyone else. Um, a few of the architectural decisions that, that really made a, a difference. Um, one of the first was not, fortunately, was not made totally by myself. Um, as we looked at how users would interact with the app, in most mobile apps, a user has the app and then we have kind of the internet and the app makes a call out to a server and the server prepares some data and then the response comes back and the server sends the data and basically the app just displays that data as it comes back from the server. And oftentimes we think of mobile apps that we build as, as basically being glorified JSON viewers where we're just asking for data and then we show that data. Well, we wanted to make sure that our users had a much better experience. Again, as I mentioned in, in the focus conversation that we had, we realized partly because we're a global company and partly because we're just aware of reality, we know that many users have limited or no connection often when they're using a mobile app. So the, the decision that we made was to have a local database on the phone. And so when the app goes to make a request, it will query the local database, we'll get the, app, the data prepared there, and then send that data 
up to the app, it can be done much faster. And then in the background, we can make a request out to the server, we can get updated data that can flow back in to our local database. And when we need to make a, an update or a refresh in the app, we can very quickly and very easily get that updated data. So this, this framework or kind of this model of having, having all of our data local first, or we've, we've often called this an offline first approach where we're, we actually, one of the nice things is we actually build this way. We build offline first. And in this way, we've been able to avoid one of the biggest headaches that we've had in the past, which is constantly waiting for the backend team to be able to provide the APIs so that we can interact with the data. At this point, we're able to build out basically whatever features Ash and Jason come up with or that we come up with together as a team, we build them out with local data, we can test them, and this will have the double benefit of making for a really nice demo mode. Once the app is live, Ash as a product manager or our salespeople or anyone else is able to use our app without connectivity to demo regardless of the situation that they're in. Now I mentioned the development that we're doing. One of, one of the things, an, another architectural decision that we made was to push for GraphQL. One of our backend teams had implemented this and we iterated on uh, just a prototype one week and we were able to do more in those two days than we could do in most sprints of two weeks. And so I went back to my boss and I said, can we please make GraphQL a requirement across all teams? And we discussed that more and kind of weighed the architectural decisions and in the end decided that's what we were going to do. And that's benefited us both on web but especially on mobile, one of, one of the real advantages of GraphQL is if we have the device, let's say, uh, this could be the client, in our case, the mobile app, and then we have the server, when we ask for data, we describe exactly what data we want. So when the response comes back, you can see it matches exactly what we asked for for. This, this makes such a huge difference because we're able to know what data we're going to get back so the back-end team can't change the keys out from under us. Um, and it also allows us to control the size of the response. One of the biggest limitations for mobile with the bandwidth is how many requests are going and how much battery is that draining, how much usage do we have of their data. Using GraphQL has really made for our development process to be much simpler and we look forward to this getting out in the wild. Now, as Jason mentioned, a huge architectural decision that we made was to adopt Swift UI. As, as we mentioned, at the beginning of the project, SwiftUI was brand new. Uh, it had just been announced. It actually was announced last summer at WWDC. And we looked at this and said, this, this is perfect timing for where we're at with our app because one of, one of the best parts of SwiftUI is that it enables fast development and also good iterations on things. So as you see in this example here, we have a traditional list that many apps have, and all of the code for that list is displayed on the screen. We just define we're going to have a list. Those items are going to display an image and a couple pieces of text. Now, in, in our previous lives, before we worked with SwiftUI, this would have been hundreds of lines of code in order to handle 
everything that was here or to handle navigation out of this and to handle user interaction. SwiftUI has really enabled us to move a lot faster in development. But as Jason mentioned, it comes with some major limitations. We anticipated we would have some because it was new. We, we recognized despite how fully fleshed it was for version one, it was a version one. So as, as we adopted this, we have learned <laughs> maybe maybe mostly by seeing Jason cry or want to cry, how limiting it can be. So one of our takeaways is that adopting new technology is very exciting. It's energized our team. We're able to move faster. It also brings many constraints and is something that's important for us to be aware of. That really ties into the other piece that I wanted to talk about, which is the process that we've operated in. And this kind of describes how we impose constraints on each other and how we're able to work together to figure out our product. If, if we think of this as our product backlog, then our product manager or our product group has responsibility for defining the what and the why. So kind of saying this is what needs to go into the product and why it's important. And they do those things together with design. So those, and I just want to call out as I showed this to Ash, our product manager, he said, will you please flip those? Why is even more important than what? So I should have flipped those. Just <laughs> want everyone to know, product knows why is more important. <laughs> the other piece that product owns is the priority. So we have this backlog and it needs to be prioritized. So in this case, we might number these one through four. Well, then engineering is involved. And as development comes in, we're responsible for how something is built. And again, this is where we partner with design. We figure out, just as Jason talked about, it's really been a fantastic process of uh, doing some discovery work together, understanding the user testing, getting a design, and then iterating on that to come up with something that's not only possible, but also a great experience. Engineering is also responsible for when things will be built and particularly for the sequencing. So if we look at these four items, we might sequence them differently and say, even though number one is the highest in priority, it should be built last of these four. And I just wanted to walk through an example of, of why this can matter and how it works out for our team. So again, we take our backlog here. I've been on teams, I'm sure many of you have been on teams where the product manager's word is law. And the product manager has prioritized these one through four, so they will be built in that order, one through four. And the product manager has maybe even committed when they're going to be shipped and available to someone. Fortunately, we, we don't have that. Um, Ash is very respectful of engineering's ability to decide when something is ready. In order to build these, we might have to start with an engineering task. So that was kind of a hidden task. We have to do that first. And then when we work on feature number one first, without any of the others, it's much bigger than it would have been. So that first sprint, we only get done the engineering task and feature number one. Then as we go to the next sprint, we pull off the next thing in priority, number two. And then again, number three is bigger than it would have been otherwise because of the sequencing that we're doing it. So if instead we bring the backlog back and we allow engineering to determine the sequencing, now as we look to the first sprint, we tackle features two and four, and then the technical task. So even though two and four are actual product features, they may lay groundwork for the other features. So by the time we get to the second sprint, we're able to tackle 
features three and one, and even have room left over to take on something new, maybe some exploration or some innovation or something that can allow us to do even more in our product. So again, kind of a simple, a little contrived example, but to show it's extremely important for us to consider the process and how things are made. So we actually want to, to give you another awkward 30 second pause to sit, take, a, take those seconds and write down what changes you think of to make to your process. Maybe things to allow engineering to sequence or to say when things are built or whatever changes might be helpful for you. Great, hopefully that was helpful. Again, just wanted to summarize this and remind you of the different responsibilities. As we look at coming up with a process, at structuring our work, product and design need to be responsible for determining the what and the why. Product is responsible for the priority and engineering or development together with design should determine the how and then engineering alone should decide the when and the sequencing. And when I say alone, uh, hopefully you're not actually alone. Ash and I work very closely on figuring out some of those things. Um, but it's really important for engineering to be that voice to say, how are we going to build things? And that was our takeaway from this, is that order matters when building software. And the people who are actually building it will often have a much better idea of the order that is important in order to get that built properly. Awesome. So... Just to uh, just get a bring everyone back together. Don't hide your constraints. Embrace them. Um, one way that we did this was we actually share every every other week with the leadership team, the IT leadership team, and they have a really clear understanding of how we are working and the constraints that they essentially have given us. And so we all have to live within constraints. Um, but actually, we have a lot of flexibility in those constraints. And so um, remember that. Um, go at it with some solid product thinking um, and, uh, and innovation is kind of ready there and waiting for you to, to, to find it. And so we'll, uh, I'll stop sharing now and we'll have uh, uh, questions. Wow, really great job guys. Um... Can we talk about that coffee spill? Like, come on, that's amazing. <laughs> I think we need to see that again. <laughs> you want to see the coffee spill again? Yeah, I think we need to see that. <laughs> okay. Exactly the reaction we hope for. Uh, let me the engineers actually built it so you could swipe left to go back if you want to watch it again. So. <laughs> and it was awesome because I didn't know they did that. So. Every time, when, when they first put that in, I kept force quitting the app so that I could try and log in again. Uh, and then I found out, no, we've actually built support for that. <laughs> okay, so uh, here we go. So amazing. Can I do it again? <laughs> 
super creative. Good job, guys. Um, cool. So um, one last thing that we wanted to go over um, with everyone is um, we just want to know what your biggest takeaway was um, from this event. All right, seconds matter, teamwork, partnership. Another one is um, allow sequencing. That's from me. I mean, that was brilliant. Take constraints and be innovative is a really good one. Hmm. Structure before pixels, yeah. really great stuff. Um, yeah, this is awesome. We'll just keep letting these trickle in. And while these are trickling in, let's just answer a couple of questions that people may have. Um, I know that we had a couple come in, um, but one is, you know, at the beginning of this project, you didn't really think about building offline. So um, how did the decision to build offline impact your original scope? And that's from Sean. Do you want to take that in? Well, I, I think uh, yes, but I want you to come after me. Okay. Uh, so as, as I mentioned, one of, one of the real benefits of doing offline first has meant that we are decoupled from the backend teams. So we can work at our own pace, we can work on our own features, and we're never blocked by someone else. And that's really made a huge difference in our development. Uh, it's more, to be honest, it's more made, a, a, I don't know, a psychological difference, because it turns out that most of the teams have been able to deliver their APIs similar to when we've pulled things in. But the problem is, as soon as you go to integrate with something, there are always some hiccups. There are always some issues. We, we found that today as well. We finally got one resolved that we can get users to test with. Um, when that is happening every single sprint, it really demoralizes the team and they feel like things are going very slow. When we've been able to build offline first, we're able to set up better tests so we have much more automated testing because we're just testing our code. We're not testing the network and the contract. And then we're able to have the the features, the, the experience defined and iterate on that together with our designer to really be able to hone things down before we get back the data. But I think there has been uh, some kind of scope adjustments that, that Ash has had to take into account. Yeah, I, from the product perspective, that was kind of a, initially a pretty difficult thing to deal with is, okay, so there's, there's a lot of work that's gonna happen before but then it kind of speeds up the process later on. Um, and so that was initially like, uh, it's hard to not have something out there, but uh, I mean, the speed that they've been able to work with because of that is, is, has kind of, that benefit is outweighed everything else. There's an interesting impact on design too. There were several conversations where we were like, oh, do we need a load state? in here and I was like oh yeah we, we'll get working on a load state and then we paused and we're like oh it, it won't load it's loading from offline data so we don't actually need a load state in most areas of the app interesting stuff all right another question from Brian what kind of reoccurring meetings do the three of you have and how does that um, spread to your wider team um we we meet at least once every week together um but because we are so i i don't know i feel so connected to jason and ben 
that we we're, we're in constant communication with each other. Um, and if something comes up, we're on Slack um, or we jump on a call or whatever it is and, and just talk through it. I, I don't know if there's actually like a, a cadence to it, but it feels just thing that <laughs> One thing that helps as well is Ash and I, and then Jason and I each have a one-on-one -on -one every other week. So we have those regular personal interactions. And then as Ash mentioned, we meet all together as a team once a week. So every other week we, op we flip between a sprint planning meeting and then the other week is just a, a team meeting, kind of my staff meeting that we've invited everyone else to as well. So that kind of engineering focus, but we really discuss things all together as a team. And then the three of us will get together ad hoc to groom uh, upcoming requirements. So we'll get together and just discuss, here are the designs, here are the requirements, are these ready for engineering or not? Um, so it's, it's really been a, a great experience that way. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, I think that's all the questions we have. Um, thank you so much for putting this on. I, I can speak for everyone. You know, it was brilliant. Really good job. Um, as Valerie said, um, I'm going to jump off. There's going to be an Air Force flyover in Utah, so I want to see that. But really good job. And then um, Wade did have one more question. If you um, have time to answer it really quick, maybe in like 30 seconds. Um, what do you do in UI when the background API update brings in data that's different from what's cached? Maybe that's a good um, question for you, Ben. Yeah, I think uh, really the risk of, of going in offline first is the potential of stale data. So as Jason said, we don't have loading states, but because we're using Apple's newest technology, we, we use Swift UI together with a new framework called Combine. If that data comes in from the background while the user's in the app, it would just refresh and almost always with a really nice animation, they would just see it update. So, so far it's, it's proved to work out really well. Awesome. All right guys, well thanks everyone for joining and we look forward to having you at another virtual event soon, hopefully in person, we'll see. A big thanks to Ash Roberts, Ben Norris and Jansen Perry for presenting and again to O.C. Tanner for hosting the event. If you learned some things from this presentation, be sure to share it with your team or share it on Twitter and mention us at product underscore hive. Sharing these talks is a great way to support Product Hive. As always, be sure to check out all our upcoming events. You can find them by searching for Product Hive on meetup.com. And while you're there, go ahead and join the group so you always get the latest updates. We also have a YouTube channel where you can find videos of all the past talks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in your feed soon, and we'll see you at one of our next events.